Hello and welcome to this special Just Cast series about the upcoming Reclosure 2021 conference. We're going to have a brief conversation with our speakers, asking them some questions about their life and job to get to know them better. Today with us is Eric Normand. Hey Eric, how are you today? Hello, I'm very good. Glad to be here. Fantastic. Eric is a software engineer and trainer based in New Orleans. Eric is giving a talk at Reclosure this year and was one of our keynote speakers last year. So it's a recurring presence, which is good. Let me start by asking the most important question of them all. What is your favorite pizza topping? Oh, favorite pizza topping. Well, uh, I'd have to say... Oh, man. There's so many good ones. <laughs> uh, something like... Uh, like caramelized onion wow you are the second oh. um <laughs> cool yeah the second with caramelized onions i think uh -huh. and i also thought that's the same like it's it's quite a an interesting choice and i like it and but it's not as easy to find at least outside the u.s i know if in, in the u.s is relatively straightforward but it's not easy to find where i live in the uk for example ah I know. So uh, my wife is from Argentina and I spent some time there and there they do one that's like all, all caramelized onion. Wow. So no, it's not like a, you know, side top. It's like the, the whole thing is covered in caramelized onion. That's all right. Really I think, I think it's an interesting choice. Good choice. Good choice. And now for a little bit more serious question. Yeah. How did you get into computers and what is exciting about software and technology for you? I got into computers when I was very young. Um, I remember seeing um, a TV show called Mr. Wizard. I love that show. It was mm. all about science and stuff you could do at home. And one time they had uh, an, a demonstration of computer programming using logo. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. I loved the fact that you could write instructions to make the computer do something. And, um, then I don't know why, but that just, th that's the first thing that like struck my fancy about computers. And I've just been into it ever since. What do I like about it? I think that computers are an unprecedented tool to help us explore ideas and understand the world better. Um, so we have the tools um, now to take our thoughts, our ideas, uh, how something might work, put them into the computer as a program and run it and see if it actually does what we expect it to do. And it probably doesn't. So you have to debug it. Maybe you type something wrong or, you know, you, you didn't think through all the consequences and by debugging, you're actually debugging your ideas because they're directly from your head. So you're debugging your understanding of the situation of the reality that you're trying to, to capture in that mm -hmm. uh, program. And so you're actually getting smarter. You're understanding the problem a lot better. Uh, and 
we, it's unprecedented, you know, before, if you wanted to model something complicated, it would be very difficult to do. Um, you know, the best case you had was like building, say like a model of the planets, right. By mm -hmm. like build physically building it with spheres and like gears and stuff. And that would take a long time. And if it was wrong, you just spent all that time building all the gears and stuff. But in, um, in, programming the feedback is much faster so mm -hmm. it it, it the, that quantitative change of speed gives you a qualitative difference nice i would take that answer like to convince somebody else uh to get into computers if i ever need that because i think it's very convincing topic and argument that you're making there uh, very nice um do you have a computer science hero uh, you would like to have lunch or drinks with, and what would you ask? Well, I also believe in the the uh, parable, the expression like "don't meet your heroes." Um, hmm. I, so I have people that I do look up to. Um, Alan Kay is one of them, hmm. but I I would be terrified to meet him. He's too smart. Like I, I feel like I <laughs> I. I would open my mouth and just he would just have like a million things to to say about what I just said and how I'm not reading enough and doing enough and when I, when he was my age you know all that stuff and um, so I don't know if I really would want to meet him <laughs> I'm too scared and what and what questions would you ask that would be really yeah I have no idea <laughs> like all, any question I ask I feel like. Um, I feel like I would have to like write a real, do real research and do a real essay trying to answer the question myself before I went to ask it to him because yeah. he's one of those, you know, he's like a famous person who probably gets tons of questions asked all the time. And um, if you don't do the research yourself, like you're, you're just going to be asking a really silly question. I concur. Um, and I had the pleasure of taking Alan Kay to lunch here in oh, London. Oh, you did? Oh, cool. Yes, I did. I did. I had the courage to do it. And uh, I don't know, I probably made silly questions, but I did exactly what you said. I I prepared, but not because I want, I mean, of course, I don't, I didn't want to waste the man time, but yeah. uh, I wasted the time, his time anyway. So there yeah. was no way I could come up with something that it was original for for this man um at the same time i think uh it changed he changed my my life how so um well you know the um not just because of that specific occasion of like having lunch but i was reading about him and like following his talks um right. online for a long time anyway uh it's the way he thinks about things which is fascinating is uh um you know, um, it's way less structured than the way I think. Um, it seems to be connecting concepts in a very original way. And okay. I think that is probably the spark of innovation going on there. And uh, mm -hmm. I am admire that and, you know, aspire at something like that, maybe uh, myself. So, yeah, it was uh, so. But definitely I would suggest, like, try anyway. Uh, if if he's available or somebody else you like is available, I, I don't think you should waste the opportunity if that is available, even if you're wasting their time. 
or if you you think you're wasting their time, but probably you're not. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, it's it's hard, right? Because he, he's, um, you know, I would think like my my first instinct would be to ask him about something that he's spoken about, mm-hmm. right? And actually, um, he did one time respond to one of my newsletters uh, because I mentioned him in it. I don't know how he found it, but he he started, you know, talking to me over email. And so I started asking him questions about stuff that he was I obviously interested in because he gave talks. And he, I mean, he just had nothing but kind of criticism, like about what the questions I was asking. He's like, you could have just Googled that. Why are you asking me? And I'm like, well, okay. I mean, I thought this was a conversation, (laughs) first of all, but I did Google it. And like, you know, why do you think I didn't Google it? Um, But, you know, then it just, it was too late. Like he had judged me and everything. And so, yeah. If you could change one thing about software, what that could be and uh, think big, like um, uh, cleaning up the mess on the web, something about how software is created and... Oh, yeah. Now, this is something I have thought a lot about. So this this is a good question. Um, I think that we need a, a... We need research into how to run software safely from from elsewhere. Right. You can't write all the software yourself. Um, and what we have now is uh, like an operating system that gives a bunch of services and then they're, they're not compatible with each other. You know, you got your Windows, you got your Linux, you got Mac OS, and um, they're, they're not interoperable. They all give different services and they all uh, have their own, you know, Uh, way that they run. Um, But in contrast, we do have an interoperability layer for networks. Mm. We have internet, which allows for different networks to connect together and um, exchange packets. Uh, And so I think we need something like maybe one layer above, um, above the IP stack that's like how do you run software some like minimal set of i mean maybe it's like a little virtual machine or something like that with a a small set of services that it provides uh and then you could just run a piece of software like really like one step above tcp Mm. and um of course they would they could communicate with each other through IP, the different pieces of software, but it would be run in like a little sandbox very safely. Mm. And uh, that something like that would be, I think the next step of the project that was kind of aborted uh, of making an interoperable um, global network. Very interesting. Yeah. Um. Did you ever like thought about working on something like that? I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm the person to do it. Uh, I mean, it's kind of, 
<clears throat> it's kind of like a neat hobby project, but I'm not like, I don't know of a research lab working on it, you know, that I would apply to. And I don't think I'm the, like, I don't have the qualifications. Uh, I'm not like a virtual machine expert or something like mm. that. Um, it would be cool though, if you could get funding for that. Mm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. The, maybe another, you know, like something, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say another project that I'm, I think would be really cool is I, I don't think, uh, I think we've reached kind of like a local maximum of the keyboard mouse and, and screen interface that we've got. Uh, and we need to kind of jostle the system and get out of that local maximum. Uh, and I've always, um, been like the only programmer I knew, <laughs> right? I've, uh, my whole life, I was like, th this was before everyone lived on the internet, right? So I was the only person who knew how to use a computer that I knew, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I've always wanted to be able to share what I did with my friends. Like if I was a painter, it's easy. You paint something, you show your friends, and they're like, wow, that's cool. I write some code and I show and they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know. What is, I don't know. Like, is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. I can't, I can't judge it at all. Uh, and I wish that software were much more, um, tangible. Something like off of a screen, basically, um, in, in the, something physical in the real world. I mean, something like Legos or something where the, the meaning of the thing is somehow apparent in the structure that you've built, right? And that's that's like a big research question. You said think big. I don't know what that looks like. It's a mystery <laughs> to me too. But mm. that's you know I think we we uh, we would it would be cool if you had something like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for going big. Uh, that that was yeah. <laughs> what I was aiming at. Yeah. Cool. Um, how, how did you get involved with the closure? Uh, right. So I was, um, I've been into common lisp for a while. I learned it in like a AI class at university and I got back into it. Um, reading Paul Graham essays. I think like a lot of people back in like 2002 or something like that. Or no, 2000, no, so uh, it's a long time ago. Uh, I, I read somewhere that okay, I wanted to make a game, right? And I knew that I could do it in C, but that that would be really tedious um, for, for my personality, you know? It's doable, mm -hmm. but I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted to use uh, a higher, a better language, one with garbage collection and and uh, better abstraction. Uh, and so I wanted to do it in common Lisp and I couldn't. Like, it was just like, there were too many choices, like which library do you use? And there's bindings and which bindings do you use to that library? And then which, you know, as so much stuff. But then I read that you could write a Lisp interpreter in a weekend. I was like, no, that's not possible. A Lisp interpreter in a weekend. Well, so I decided I was going to write a Lisp interpreter whose main job was to do C function calls easily. 
Uh, and so I wrote that. It took more than a weekend. This was my first time doing it. But I really got into like the, the language itself. I never wrote the game. Um, but I got into building little languages and little lisps and like I, I, I felt like that was the, that was a key. It was like opening up a new door. I had been in the Java OO world and it didn't interest me anymore. And uh, started building a lot of stuff in, in common lisp. And then in 2008, um, I went to a conference where Rich Hickey was speaking. I didn't know he was going to be there. It was a common, it was a Lisp conference. Uh, it was the 50th anniversary of Lisp. In oh, yeah. Yeah. And they had invited Rich Hickey to talk about the future of Lisp. And so he, he basically presented closure. And I was skeptical at first. Um, I, I still believed that uh, common Lisp could be, you know, made a future future language um but someone at the conference said well have you tried it you should give it a shot i think he was uh pretty active in like the 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 chat you know the irc at that time and so i went home and i gave it a try and i never looked back like i probably fired up common list once or twice since then uh, i've just been doing closure the whole time and it um it really felt like a good mix of um of the wisdom that lisp had you know 50 years of of iteration and and divergent branches of lisp and coming back and like a lot of there's a lot of wisdom baked into lisp um but built for the modern world um, built on top of the jvm using um the polymorphism that the jvm gives you in an interesting way, using new data structures. Um, uh, you know, you don't know how much time is spent in common list worrying about cons cells, right? Mm. Like how much are you consing? That, is, that basically is means how much memory are you uh, using and generating garbage. Um, and the, the fact that you had, uh, it was kind of like a modern, modern, touch on Lisp. Uh, and it was much more functional. So I, that's all the stuff that I, I really liked about it. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite function in enclosure? It's a kind of a funny, <laughs> favorite, funny function. question, but yeah, like if something that you say, Oh, yes, I can use it today. Uh, uh, no, no, so I have an aesthetic uh, that I think I picked up from both the both the JavaScript world and Dan Friedman, the guy who wrote um, Little Schemer. Yep. Uh, that I think that you should use a subset of a language. Mm. Um, it's. I mean, it feels really great when you look in the Closure Standard Library. And there's some function that does exactly what you want, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you could have just used a map and a filter to get it, like, just use the map and the filter. Like, there's there's no um, value in, like, using some function you, that other people might not know about. Uh, mm. That's my 
That's my feeling. Like if okay. you find a little subset, a comfortable subset of the language that, that works really well, stick in that. Hmm. Okay. Good. Um, it's a, it's a unusual take, I guess. Um, now that's not to say you but... shouldn't expand it. If like you find mm. something really useful, like, I think there's some really great stuff like frequencies. That's I love mm-hmm. frequencies. There you go. Yeah. Group by use it all the time. <laughs> yeah, those like um, data aggregation functions that are very useful. I mean, all how the time. many times are you making a, a loop just to count stuff? Frequencies does mm. it for you. Just gives you all the <laughs> counts. Mm. Uh, and it's yeah, the true. kind of thing when I'm working in a different language, I'll be like, oh, if I just had frequencies, this would be a two line function. So I just write frequencies and then I write the two-line function. Because <laughs> the other thing I really like about Clojure is the stuff is so, um, like, it, it, it's it's democratic in a way. Ah, oh, you could have written frequencies. It's not like some special magic. Uh, it's just done for you already. <laughs> yeah. And if it could be anything, what would you do if it wasn't software development? Oh. Might be a writer, hmm. writer, teacher, something like that. Yeah. Okay. I really like um, taking ideas and figuring out how to how to explain them and get them, make them real for people. Mm-hmm. So that would be probably still in the technical technical topics. Yeah, probably. But I, I think that I would expand like, so it's technical, maybe a technical approach to topics. So I might write a book on like poetry, right? But it would mm-hmm. be a very technical book mm-hmm. um, on, on you know, whatever I would be interested in. If I could do anything and make make money at it, sure, I would do that. I don't <laughs> know if there's much, you know, of an audience who wants to learn a new way to analyze poetry or something. <laughs> you never know. Um, what, what do you do for like when you want to unwind or for fun? Uh, so I don't get much of that these days. Um, what do I like to do? I like to ride a bike, uh, go for mm. long walks, hiking, camping. I like to cook. I cook a lot to unwind it drives my wife crazy sometimes because she's like why are you making all these dishes we could just eat a sandwich and i'm like yeah but like today was so stressful i just needed to do something uh extravagant and favorite do you have a favorite plate i really like curry um both indian curry and thai curry um i just like them i like the flavor profiles and the spiciness and Okay, cool. Um, now going a little bit more philosophical, what is your idea of perfect happiness? My idea of perfect happiness. Um, I think perfect happiness is... Oh, I'm going to use a metaphor. So hmm. let's say you're juggling a lot of balls. It's hard, it's stressful because there's a lot of them and you're kind of at your limit. Um, Perfect happiness is to find the place mentally where you can do your best to juggle those balls. And if one of them falls, 
you continue and, you know, try to pick it up and get it back in there. And that's, that's perfect happiness. Modern life Mm -hmm. is really complicated. There's a lot of stuff you got to manage. And I think that to me being like having the right number of balls and then the right mindset for handling that number of balls, that's happiness. (laughs) Nice. Um, uh, if it wasn't where you live already, where would you most like to live? Ooh, <sighs> I think I would like to live in Europe somewhere. Um, I, I find, uh, I have lived in, in, I lived in Paris for a year. And one thing that I really appreciated, at least about France was that there wasn't the anti-intellectualism that I find here in the U S um, hmm. people in France would, would delight in an intellectual conversation. Uh, you know, sometimes they're out of their depth. I'm out of my depth, but we're enjoying the, you know, just the fun of, of playing with ideas. Um, hmm. so I like that about at least France. Um, I like that a lot of European cultures are, have strong cultures. So, there's, uh, there's sort of an agreement about a lot of stuff that I, I don't find here in the U S we're very individualist. And, uh, over time I see in my life stuff, like everyone's got different opinions about how to raise kids, what you should be eating, how you should, uh, you know, how you should live, what, what kind of house you need. And like, you just can't agree. And so everyone's just doing their own thing and uh, you're all left to your own devices and it would be nice to have a culture that kind of supported um, a a certain lifestyle. You know, Hmm. if you like that lifestyle, you just fit right in and you just carry it along. Uh, The Hmm. the downside is that if you don't like that lifestyle, you are, uh, you're swimming against the current, you know, Whereas here you, you would be left alone. I've heard that before from foreigners who come here, who, you know, they, they migrate to the U S and they say like, Oh, I can just, I can be finally who I want to be. Whereas back home, I wasn't allowed to. So mm. it's a trade-off. Yeah. Always trade-offs. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, okay. We are toward the end of the interview, but, uh, before we close, can you give us a brief introduction to your talk? Right. Okay. Uh, so my talk is called the art of domain modeling and I, uh, have been working on these ideas for quite a while. They were supposed to be the the main focus of part three of my book, but that, and my book is grokking simplicity. Now it's only two parts. The part three got cut because it didn't really fit with the other two, two parts. Hmm. Uh, and my main, the main nugget is that I think that, uh, so, okay. So why do people do software design? Uh, it's because there's a real danger that software becomes harder to maintain, costlier to maintain and, and, uh, slower to develop new features over time. 
but that's a lagging indicator. You can't really know how much it costs to maintain your code until you actually go and maintain it. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, you, it's too late. Once you've found out how much it costs, you've already spent the cost. Uh, so what software design is doing is looking for leading indicators. So little rules of thumb, like, uh, don't have long methods, you know, use good names, things like this that are leading indicators. You can look at the code today and say, well, a better name would, would decrease the cost of maintenance down the road. Uh, but why does your code get messy in the first place? Why is it like unclean and, and disorganized? And I think that there's a leading indicator before that, at least one, and that one is that you don't have a good domain model. And mm. so I'm trying to find a, um, a way of, of making a better domain model so that your code isn't, doesn't have to be as messy um, and then lead down the road to reduced costs. Uh, and so I'm going to be talking about all the ideas I have. They're still kind of disorganized, but it's, it's stuff about how do you analyze a domain? How do you evaluate a domain model, whether it's good or, you know, would it, it could be better. How could it be better? And then how do you create one, um, from all that analysis yeah. you've done? Yeah. Very, very important topic, I think. And, uh, people should not confuse when they hear this, they should not confuse domain modeling with object orientation because maybe they could. Yeah. Uh, we are talking about something that is for every right programming it, language or paradigm, right? Yeah. And I'm, it's definitely going to have a functional leaning because mm -hmm. that's, that's the way I, I think. And I think that it, it does it functional programming does, uh, lend a lot of good ideas there. Um, yeah. But yes, I agree. I think object-oriented design and analysis, as it's called, uh, where you're like trying to figure out where your what your objects should be, what your classes should be, and what their relationship should be. Like I, I think that that has damaged people's thought processes more than more than we realize. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We don't want to know the entire story, right? We just. Uh... So this is like a little taste, and then uh, hopefully yeah, and then you have to come like to the a, talk. Yeah, of course, and people will will see the talk when the time comes. Okay, um, anything we forgot to add? No, no, I think that's good. Okay, well, um, Eric it was a pleasure. Um, uh, thanks a lot for your time. Uh, thanks a lot for your thoughts in this interview, and looking forward to the talk. Thank you. Hope to see you at the conference.